I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Hello, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi to talk about C.I. Schofield and the system that he promoted. Zellwin, how are you? I'm doing great, Willie. Things got rather cold up here in the, uh, the northern tundra. I woke up uh, yesterday morning to discover it was about 30 below outside, which is warming to my heart, I guess you could say. But it's it's gotten quite a bit colder around here, and so I guess winter has finally arrived. What about what about down in Illinois? Well, quite chilly, actually. Very chilly. Um, have to make sure the chickens are all okay. Uh, but windy and chilly and... Not not a whole lot of snow yet. We're still kind of waiting on that. We're going to see what happens. Uh, they they always predict some apocalyptic snow event that just that just hasn't come yet, and uh, so we'll have to see what the signs say um, about that. But it has been finally cold. It's been unseasonably warm, and now it's it's really starting to creep creep down there. So so we'll see. We're, we're wintering in. Probably still a bit warm from your perspective. You might you would probably break into a sweat. Basically, <laughs> you would feel like you had a low grade fever. If you were here in these sub-zero temperatures, more um, than more than likely, yes. Right. Although at, at these temperatures up here, it's actually too cold to snow, so that's that's always a fun little <laughs> it, bit. It just lingers in the sky. The firmament, <laughs> the upper firmament, cannot be broken <laughs> until the, the the windows of of heaven are opened. Yeah, exactly. Imagine not believing in a biblical cosmology. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Uh, right. well, so we, gotta we, have, be, we have to be good and biblical about it, you know, because we're going to be dealing with some stuff that maybe is not quite as much. Not quite as much. That's true. It's interesting. We we like to posit and even espouse antiquated theories on things and older theories and, and even and even medical quackery uh, from the 19th century that is objectively true. We like to promote here. <laughs> uh, you, I'm just saying you can tell you can cure a lot of things with water and uh, you can tell a lot of things about the shape of a person's head. These are true. But some things from the 19th century are not great, uh, as we've also discussed, and one of them uh, would be the dispensational system. Right. Very interesting history. And, uh, you know, why are we talking about uh, old C.I. Schofield today? Well, C.I. Schofield is kind of the, the major promoter of this system of thinking. It's a system that, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, comes from, uh, is imported from England, from the, the Plymouth Plymouth Brethren and Darby, among others. And he, uh, Schofield is the one that kind of really makes it popular. And so after Schofield's time, and the, the especially the introduction of his book, which we'll also talk about, dispensationalism as an idea becomes very, very popular within American Christianity. And in fact, it seems to be, you might even say, the, the dominant force in American religion today when it comes to talk about the end times. 
I think that's true, especially for Bible believing Christians. You know, there's probably a large uh, proportion of liberal churches, for lack of a better word, that believe something different about the end times or don't even believe in the end times. They don't live as if the second coming is actually true. We're going to beat up on (laughs) the dispensational system uh, over the course of a few episodes down the road. We're going to take a different approach to how we usually do our episodes. or, well, I won't say a different approach. It's going to be similar to how we actually tackle Joseph Smith and others. We're going to talk about the life of Cyrus Ingerson Schofield, and we're going to try to be as fair but unvarnished as we can be. And what you have with Schofield is that there are only a couple of really substantial books written about him, and there are a lot of gaps to fill in, and they're either hagiography or a complete a destruction of his character. And honestly, with him, if we're being objective, I think we have to fall on the ladder based on what we know. Even Okay, you can try to fill in the gaps, but even if you don't fill in the gaps, there are some really strange things about this guy. And so the first question would be, well, why even bother? Does a person's character or motivations affect his theology at all? I I think it certainly can. And even if even if the, 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 say, the system that he has promoted uh, goes on to become something else than what he himself you know, was or had you know, tried to make it into be, you still have to ask the question, you know, what was, you know, what were his motives when he was promoting these kinds of things? You know, what was he trying to do? You know, is he sincere? Uh, I mean, yeah, a, a man's character can in, in some way shape the way that he thinks even about God. And, when we're trying to deal with, you know, delicate questions like this, sometimes looking at his life can be enlightening when it comes to dealing with even problems that crop up in the system. Sure. And there's kind of an idea out there that says that, well, a man can have excellent theology and poor character. I suppose you could settle for that, but can't we, can't we strive for both? I mean, I'm, I, and, and Schofield is actually a great example for us today with all of these would-be self-made, branded theologians that we have out there um, in the Twitter sphere. And, and I mean, the real difference is, is that Darby at least had some parish experience. Right. But what we have, what we see in Darby is a guy who makes his own image, makes himself into um, into this thing. And we see that today. These guys come out, they'll have proper name dot ministry or whatever. They'll have their little brand. And granted, we're word we like to say that word fitly spoken is more an ethos than a brand, but, <laughs> but at least we have parishes. Right. Right. And, and so you get these guys out there that are just creating these, these little egocentric kind of things and, and really building up the personality around them. Well, you, you see that in Schofield and anytime someone is doing that, anytime someone has a high proportion of selfies, okay. Or quotes of themselves in their branding, I'm automatically suspicious of them and their theology. And why? Because, well, what does John the Baptist say referring to Jesus Christ? But he must increase, I must decrease. And and so with Schofield now, what you have is people who want to be objective about his biography and say, okay, uh, there, there are some very uh, dark things here. And he, and he has built up this theological system based around certain things and certain influences that we see perhaps even certain financial backers. And I think that's something worth looking at. So we have to say, is he really deriving his system from scripture or is something else happening? And we see this all the time with people seeking to to justify 
themselves and their practices and their doctrines. Uh, you know, we, we see them try to twist scripture and reinvent it to sort of excuse their own foibles. Now, every theologian is a sinner. This is all true. But at the same time, there are some things that are just beyond the pale. You know, and mm-hmm. we, we, we could cite specific examples, but we would probably be held up for liable. Although, can you be held up for liable, liable if, if the libel is true? Libel, by definition, has to be false, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so, and so with that, you know, we're not going to be uh, ham-fisted. We're not going to necessarily, you know, try to be, to be unfair to the guy. But I think you've gotta, you really have to, to look at this here really for what it is. So you have a system promoted by shady characters that eventually becomes the norm. Right. right. And, and so, you know, we're going to, we're going to be a little bit direct and, and especially as we get into the episodes focusing on the system, I think that, you know, there, there are fundamental uh, issues with uh, the, the systems. This is where we're going to get, you know, <laughs> the most uh, hard headed about things and the most, you know, I mean, we're always we're always confessionally solid, right? But uh, sometimes we try to be ironic, and, and this is a system I don't really care to be ironic toward. <laughs> I, I respect its fundamentalist roots and what they're fighting against, and I think we find a lot of common ground there. But a system that's developed into something that says essentially people can be saved apart from Christ, or that we need to bring back animal sacrifices and things like that, I have no time for. And sure. you have <laughs> nobody should Christians should flee from that sort of thing, and so we're going to take our time and go through it and kind of look at it. Somebody will probably accuse us on Twitter of not being not being nicer or winsome enough or or something like that. And you know he'll 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 he'll, he'll put a video with a big picture of his mug on it, you know, smiling with 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 some hipster glasses, saying something like, you know, <laughs> you know, word fitly trolls, blah blah blah. But anyway. We're not here. We're not here to talk about trolling. But I would like to to give a shout out to um to our greatest supporters who are anonymous Twitter trolls. <laughs> I I love them. I do, and I mean that unironically. Un- 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 it's really funny to me because some of these guys are, are really funny, and some of these guys have really really good content. And then <laughs> the objection is always, "Well, I'm not going to respond to them because they're anonymous." You know, says the upset guy with a picture of. Martin Luther disguised as Knight George on his desk. A little bit of a little bit of an inconsistency there. Look, once you step into the social media waters and put yourself out there, you know this is this is just kind of the thing that's going to happen. So so keep up the good work, Anons. That's that's really what we're saying here at Word Fitly. <laughs> and it also goes to show you that this might be a pretty a pretty hot episode if if we've already gotten to this point ten minutes in. So right, yeah, right. <laughs> Always based and red pilled here at Word Fitly. <laughs> right. So, anyways, Owen, uh, let's pick up then in the 19th century and and kind of start at the origins here. Let's talk about fundamentalism a little bit. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I mean, I'm sure you can fill in a lot of the details on this, but you know, fundamentalism as a movement was a reaction against what they you know what they called the the increasing modernism of the time you know, the, the kind of movements and ideas that were trying to discredit the Bible or were trying to, you know, set, you know, elevate certain w- uh, ways of knowledge over what they considered to be antiquated ways of knowledge. And the fundamentalists saw these as, saw the basic doctrines of the Bible as being under attack. And so, you know, you, of course, you have the, the famous uh, 
book series, you know, The Fundamentals, which was published, which is where the, the name comes from, emphasizing what they considered to be the, the basics, the fundamentals of the faith, the sort of things that you needed to hold on to if you wanted to maintain a biblical religion, especially in the face of, of movements which were seeking to, to efface it, right? Sure. I mean, how what would you add to that, Willie? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. And, and you know, it gets so tied up into temperance and things like that nowadays. So we think of fundamentalists as women in denim skirts and people advocating temperance, two things that I feel actually very strongly in favor of in many ways. <laughs> but, uh, it, yeah, it gets tied up into that. But if we, if we take it as people who are affirming the virgin birth and people who are affirming miracles and the actual resurrection of the dead – then it's really something that we can embrace to a degree. It would be very, it would not very, but it would be much more, much less <laughs> difficult for us to try to bring a fundamentalist over to us than than a than a leftist, I believe. Sure. And despite what you know, I know we want to like we're flannel and be the cool hipster, blah blah blah. You know, image in certain circles. I, I don't want that. Um, I want people who believe in a living God coming in, and I can work with that. You have to build up completely from scratch with people who have rejected the scriptures um, in favor of some sort of antinomian legalist system. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so that, that I, so I want to be I want to be clear that that fundamentalists believe the Bible and that that's a good thing. We might disagree on some finer points here and even some great points, especially regarding the sacrament and baptism. And those are not light issues. But at least I share something in common with someone who believes that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that Jesus is fully God, that, that Jesus performed miracles, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the dead in Christ will rise, those sorts of things. People who believe in a, in a, in a last judgment, for example, that, that I guess that's what a lot of people associate with fundamentalism is, is hellfire preaching. But, hey, you know what? You could do a lot worse. Some of us need to hear that. Sure. Well, and, and other things to remember about the fundamentalists, too is that because they have this strong emphasis on the scriptures, and that's something, I, like you say, we should you know, affirm with them and can even find common ground with them, as we very often did in, in the early days in Missouri. One of the things that kind of that became something of their weakness, too, because if someone came to them claiming to present something strictly from the Bible, you know, they might be more inclined to receive these kinds of ideas, yeah. which I think is how Schofield and his system actually becomes as popular as it does. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. And yeah, that's what we have at a time when. So if you're looking, you know, mid 19th century, which really for Schofield is late 19th century, we're just getting into the forgotten era with the Missouri Synod. Uh, so we are still a little bit isolated ethnically. Okay, so that's why we don't really come into this in a big way. But the Presbyterians are flirting with weirder doctrines in some cases or other weird doctrines kind of moving toward unbelief. And they'll do that up into the 20th century. The old established denominations aren't sure what to do with fundamentalism and modernism, for lack of a better term, for this period. A little bit anachronistic there. And and so what you have are simple Christians in America needing access to solid theology. And here come these teachers who do ostensibly believe in the scriptures. And and so people are receiving them openly and oftentimes with very little discernment because they know that these groups believe in the Bible. So they're going to trust what they say. Right. Right. Which, which has led to some detrimental things to be, to be sure. Well, and I mean, it's, 
it, it is really kind of sad in a way because, you know, they, they were looking for something that came, comes from the scriptures and that's a laudable thing to do. But again, a lot of these ideas were promoted on those basis. And unfortunately, there were there were large portions that, like you said, just didn't exercise the right discernment. So, right. yeah, so it, it really is a kind of a, a mixed movement in that sense, but still one that we could find much in common with. Uh, correct. I, I agree with that. And, you know, I think we need to get, you know, some Lutherans today, uh, like I said, are really concerned about being called a fundamentalist. It's like a dirty word. But why would you rather be associated with with social gospel stuff or, right. you know, I, I just I mean, to each his own, I suppose. But uh, I will. I will con- it, it's easier to get me to contend against that stuff than to contend against a, a simple family who is praying together, reading the scriptures, going to church, educating their children and and trying to live apart from the world, a life of faith. I'm supposed to demonize those people because they might be a little bit backwards or awkward or not cool. <laughs> Forget about it. Get out of here with that. Exactly. So, yeah. And anyway, so as we're coming up near the end of the first segment already, we want to talk about how dispensationalism gets started. And this is why we're talking about Schofield. It's his reference Bible that is going to popularize that. And we will get into that a little bit more in the episode. But the system itself finds its roots in John Nelson Darby, a Plymouth Brethren uh, preacher, and even founds a group called the Exclusive Brethren. But he founds this, he invents this system called dispensationalism. Interestingly enough, ethnically, he's considered Anglo-Irish. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> but but apparently it's a thing. You can it's be Anglo-Irish. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and so as we talk about dispensationalism, and, I, and I'll try to keep this brief just because of the, the time, you're going to move from this original version of dispensationalism to today's most popular version, which is called progressive dispensationalism, which we'll talk about in future episodes. But in general, whichever system you're talking about, there are three fundamental characteristics of dispensationalism. And we get this from Charles Ryrie, the great popularizer of the system in the 20th century. One, it keeps Israel as a distinct entity from the church. You can never confuse Israel and the church according to dispensationalists. Two, they claim that they distinguish between Israel and the church based upon a quote-unquote literal interpretation of Scripture. And three, these are his words from his book, Dispensationalism. It views God's underlying purpose in the world as displaying his glory rather than simply saving humanity. So you have three things going on. The first one being the, the very the very great error to, do, to drive this wedge between Israel and the church, uh, to, to destroy the plain meaning of, I don't know, the Bible. And, and to drive this wedge. And, and, and it evolves into all sorts of crazy things that we'll get into, like John Hagee's dispensationalism, for example, and, and Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye's. But to, to say that, that the literal approach to Scripture, whatever literal means for them, right. uh, is, to, is to say the church and Israel are separate, well, that's where you get this idea then that comes up in a lot of dispensationalism, that there are two paths to salvation. Now, the, the more clever ones, the progressive dispensationalists, as they're called, will try to smooth that over and say, no, both are saved by Christ, but it's a little bit different. Uh, where we would say that from first to last, if anyone is saved, it is by Christ. And that according to the New Testament, the, the children of Abraham are not only by blood, but there are one tree, which is Christ, one, you know, branches grafted in and branches pruned off. 
And the pruning off is where the real rub comes in because who is pruned, pruned off. And according to the analogy in Romans, right? Right. So, right. so this, this distinction between Israel and the church is really what's at the heart of dispensationalism. This glory versus salvation thing is a little bit of a side point, but it is one of his three distinctives that he says. I don't know how God isn't glorified in the salvation of man, but whatever. <laughs> you know, that's what that's how Ryrie wants to put it. But this distinction between Israel and the church is very deadly. It's spiritually deadly, not only when it comes to the idea espoused by some dispensationalists that we should not evangelize the Jewish people. Which is actually becoming more and more. I mean, even even Ro- Rome basically says not to uh, evangelize Jews anymore, or even Muslims. Can you imagine being a papist in twenty twenty one? I mean, I could. Uh, I mean, like, seriously, imagine it. Imagine, imagine wanting to look like and be like a papist in twenty twenty one. Yeah. You know, I, I know it's at the end of the break, but I want to talk about this. Uh, we need to quit like caring about what uh, the Pope says. I, I don't care. <laughs> Before, <laughs> you know, I mean, no, I mean, sincerely, it's like, why would you want to be identified with Vatican II Catholicism? Why would you want to be identified with the devil? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, this is going to be a hot episode. <laughs> but maybe, and maybe before we do go into break, I do want to say one thing, especially about this this earlier dispensationalism. I, I'm totally, I'm right on board there with you with when it comes to papism. But I just want to make this point before we right, go to right. break. Especially with Darby and very much is the case with Schofield, uh, early dispensationalism also believes in a, a, that God deals with humanity in different ways in these different time periods, these different dispensations, as yeah. they call them. Right. right. Uh, which they, they see typically as having seven different dispensations in which we are living in the sixth, if I remember correctly. Yes, the seventh being the one that is is to come when when Christ returns. Yeah, the, the thousand year literal reign of Christ on the earth, which right. in the premillennial dispensational system. Right. Yeah, and like I said, we'll we'll get into this in depth because there's so many little details here uh, in future episodes. But yeah, that is the big one. Now, in in faithful theology books, you will especially older ones, you will see the term dispensation. Right. Very often. But that is not referring to the dispensational system, right? Right. Yeah. No. the 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 idea of a progressive progressiveness in God's revelation is something that is very biblical. The idea that there are different dispensations is not. So, but we'll get it. We'll get into that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we're on our first break. We'll be right back with more word fitly spoken after this. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. We're talking C.I. Schofield, his book, and the system that he promoted. Well, we talked a little bit about um, uh, Rome for some reason at the end there. Sorry, folks. Sometimes <laughs> the fire burns a little bit hot. And um, you, you'll start to see that as these systems develop, they're really two sides of the same coin. But now we're going to talk a little bit about Schofield proper. What does life look like? <laughs> you know, uh, why we're a little bit suspicious of some things. Ellen, why don't you why don't you start us out? Well, part of the suspicion that you're talking about here, Willie, is that when it comes to talking about Schofield's life, there's not sometimes in some places not a whole lot we can say. And part of the reason for that is that there are large gaps in his biography where we're not really sure where he was during, you know, certain years of his life. And I mean, that, that can make any biography fairly difficult to, to map out. But probably the, the more pressing problem is that there are a number of just general in, inaccuracies yeah. that come with his life and also with his own claims for himself. You know, when, when you have a man who is a little fast and loose with his own biography and things that he's doing, it can be very difficult to pin down, you know, what exactly he's, you know, where he is or what he's doing or where he came from. And maybe maybe the, the, the biggest one that I could show with this is that Schofield, especially, you know, towards the, the end of his life, always referred to himself as Dr. Schofield, you know, that he had a right. doctor of divinity and he promoted it in his uh, reference Bible as well. But the, the problem is, is that no one knows where this doctorate came from. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. He, he is just one day Dr. Schofield. Right. And it's like, did he did he just decide to call himself Dr. Schofield? Did he have some sort of I mean, it, that at least raises a gigantic red flag about this man and about uh, some of the details that he's claiming for himself. And as we'll see that there are more of these kinds of problems uh, throughout his biography, which is going to unfortunately reflect something about the character of the man as well. Right. So um, we'll kind of breeze through some of the, the childhood stuff. He's uh, born to a nominally Episcopalian family in Michigan in 1843. He loved to read. We do know this. One of the, one of the indisputable things is he is a great fan of English literature and of classical literature in, gen in general. So he's a cut above the rest in that. Uh, we want to give credit where credit's due. In, 16, in, the, in 1861, he's living in Tennessee, and he does enlist in the Tennessee Infantry. So he's a Confederate soldier. But even then, here's where we start to find these gaps again. He petitions for a discharge. He is discharged and then eventually befriends a bunch of Union people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and then he's going to use at a certain point his, his Confederate credentials to kind of promote himself. So he'll claim to have been, you know, rewarded a medal from uh, the Confederate Army, except the Confederate Army didn't award medals. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Confederate Army only or issued one medal uh, in the entire uh, struggle. And, sure. and, and people can correct me on that. But he claims this. What he does get is the Cross of Honor, or claims to have the Cross of Honor, but that's something that's not issued by the Confederate army. That's something that's not even issued until the 1900s. And that's by like the daughters of the, Conf of the Confederacy, uh, the, yeah, the United daughters of the Confederacy. So, and even then he claims to be at like, for instance, he'll claim to have been at a, uh, at a famous battle in 
in the Civil War as a Confederate, but he uses Union terminology to refer to the battle, for example. Things that kind of throw up red flags. It's kind of like, like you know, if, if you had to be a spy in World War II and you were pretending to be German. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, so, it's, all, it, it's all rather suspicious. And I mean, yeah, so, so like, I'll give you an example. So like, he, he, he indicates that he was awarded the cross of honor for his service at Antietam, but, but Southerners call that the battle of Sharpsburg, for example. Right. So it doesn't, the point is, it sounds like a minor thing here, but it doesn't smack of authenticity. Right. And it would be one thing if he maybe had just misspoken at one point, you know, cause we all do this, you know, we all make mistakes, but these were claims that he made consistently. Right. You know, things that, you know, especially in order to kind of, uh, you know, promote himself up, you know, pump himself up or whatever you want to say. So the the fact that he's doing this with these little inconsistencies is, I mean, think of it more of as a cumulative case saying something about who he is as an individual. Because especially when we get into his life before he becomes a minister, because he doesn't enter into the ministry until, you know, fair, you know, about middle of his life, would you say? Yes. Right. Some of his activities, especially in Missouri and in Kansas, are also questionable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get into that a little bit. So we, we went from the Civil War. Well, let's talk a little bit about him prior to the ministry then. Okay. He's, he's off to a great start. Uh, as many great 19th century religious heroes that we can all put our trust in, he was a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean... And I, I, reading some of the things I did, be, becoming a lawyer in those days was a little bit easier to do. You didn't necessarily have to go to school to start practicing law. And that's basically what Schofield's probably doing in this case. But he ends up as a lawyer eventually in Missouri, in St. Louis, until the point when he moves into Kansas. And maybe I have my timeline screwed up here a little bit, but he ends up in Kansas and is practicing law there where he actually gets into politics as well. Yeah. And while he's in Kansas, he's appointed the, the attorney general for Kansas at a very young age. Uh, what is he, like 29 or something like that, or 39? Yeah. Um, the youngest in the country at the time, but he kind of got it because he was backing the right uh, uh, candidate for senator at the time. So it's, it's kind of a, it's who he knew that got him the job rather than maybe his own merits. Yeah, that's interesting, too. So at 29, he becomes this uh, the youngest district att- attorney in the country, but it's in Kansas. And so, you know, Kansas is an interesting place in the late 1800s. And uh, it's it's actually uh, at his, he solemnly swears. So he has to, to like, In- Ingalls, his buddy in Kansas, has to petition Ulysses S. Grant in order to get Schofield's recommendation pushed through. And at that recommendation, you know what he swears? He swears that he never voluntarily bore arms against the United States. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so he's a Confederate hero, but he never voluntarily bore arms against the United States. He said he had voluntarily given no aid, countenance, counsel to persons engaged in armed hostility there, too. And he had not yielded a voluntary support to any pretended government authority, power of constitution within the United States, hostile or uh, there, too. Yeah. So. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> Now, now he says that, and remember, he didn't receive the medal from the Confederates before that because they didn't exist. So 27 years later, he's going to receive the Confederate Cross of Honor for his service at Sharpsburg. Yeah. But maybe the key is voluntarily. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, now, now, from there, though, he is going to be accused in December 1873 uh, by a newspaper of uh, with an affidavit that says that he had been bribed to keep a certain person from being brought to trial. Before that, you have, you know, you have him really not trying too many cases, but this is where he begins to get tied up with people who might have influenced his his theology, because we're trying to see a pattern of Schofield being very, what's the word we want to use? I want to use here, not influential, although he would become influential, but easily influenced. Sure. But, but before we get to his, that kind of influence, which especially comes after his time in Kansas, I think. Sure. It, it's important to note here that he was eventually removed from being the attorney general for Kansas. Correct. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of these suspicions that had cropped up and, you know, accusations of of taking bribes and just kind of some shady deals he had gone through. He he resigns from the position not very long after becoming attorney general, if I remember correctly. Correct. Wasn't it only like six months or something like that? Yeah, it was not very long, not long at all. So, but then, but then he ends up going to St. Louis, maybe back to St. Louis or whatever, where he's practicing law or at least is claiming to practice law at the time, which is where he comes under the influence of these people you were talking about. Correct. Correct. And it's at this point that we find his uh, first wife, too. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, we're kind of going kind of going a little back and forth here because he's in St. Louis. Then he's in Kansas. Right. You know, and then and then back. Right. So he, he pops up in papers again in Kansas or excuse me, in St. Louis in 1879. And that and that that is where he's actually arrested and charged with forgery. But that case does get dropped. Right. But, uh, you know, sort of prior to all this is his first wife which I believe is in 1866 in St. Louis, Leontine, would that be how you would say your name? Sounds Leon, good Le, Leontine Seri. I know it's got two R's there. So we'll just say Seri because we're Americans. But <laughs> he's married before, in 1866. He's married before a justice of the peace. Uh, a civil wedding was their only option because her family was Catholic and he was not. So in those days, you know, if you wanted to marry Catholic, you had to convert. So there's there's no religious ceremony here. And really, he's not a religious man at this point. The problem is with his first wife is that had you not done the digging on this or had, you know, as someone not done the digging into this, you wouldn't know she existed. Right. Because right. she she is scrubbed from his own memoirs and biographies, things like that. Well, and and also the fact that uh, she- he he, more or less kind of abandons her, especially during their time in Kansas. She she ends up staying in Kansas. Yeah, she's in uh, remains in Atchison, Kansas. So hello to all the listeners out there in Atchison. Right, and uh, and she ends up. Uh, I think she remarries there and eventually dies, if I remember correctly. Yeah, we know that they're not with Schofield during his St. Louis years. Right, but when he goes back, anyway. But my point is, is that she eventually requests a divorce from him, which, of course, would have been a gigantic scandal in those times. Um, but is something that is not, again, really brought forward much in later in in later biographies that are at least for him. Right. Yeah, and what was her reason? What was the reason for the divorce given? Uh, abandonment, if I remember. Abandonment. Correctly. Yeah. That he yeah, just so, straight neglecting her. Right. So, And again, you know, we're talking about. You know, pre-conversion, people sin, people do things. And yet this is a pattern, not necessarily abandoning his family, but there is a pattern that's going to continue of, of embellishment and of concealment of the truth beyond his point of conversion or his alleged point of conversion. Right. Yeah. And we'll we'll get into when we talk about his 
we need to talk about his influences here before we get to his ministry. But something that I think is is very, very telling and something I don't want to, to miss is that he was ordained in, was it in Texas or was it in St. Louis? I can't remember. Um, the ordination? The actual ordination. Uh, it is in Dallas, I believe. It's in Dallas. Yeah. And we'll get to his time in Dallas. But well, he was. Okay. Yeah. His first call is to Dallas. Is he ordained in Dallas? Well, well, wherever he's ordained, the point is, is that he was going through his divorce at the same time, <laughs> which yeah. I think says something about his character. But yeah. no, no, no. Yeah, no, he's he's definitely I just I just pulled it up here. Yeah, he, he is ordained as a minister and then accepts the call to Dallas. So okay. so it would have been in St. Louis. Yeah. OK. OK. Yeah. But. You can see that there there are some things that are going to continue, and the fact that he is you know being divorced from his first wife even before it's finalized while he's being ordained says that maybe some some habits perhaps died a little bit hard for him uh, but, correct yeah, but here we are <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah so he's he's ordained, and then his troubles just kind of continue from from there, right, and we're doing good on time, so we can. Shall we? Shall we? Shall we go on? Well, I think we should. But you wanted to talk about some of the influences on him, especially while he was in St. Louis, uh, right? But I think we can also get that uh, that a little bit more as we talk about the book. Okay. Um, and his influences come after his connection to Moody too. That's really what I'm what I'm getting at here. Okay. Okay. Uh, th- th- those are the are the influential ones. Who do Who do you mean by Moody for listeners? Well, I was going to ask you. Why don't you tell Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about your person <laughs> about your personal hero, D.L. Moody? <laughs> But no, we can, and then we can tie Schofield. I'll I'll tie Schofield into him for you. But you you give us the biography, and I'll bring I'll throw Schofield into the narrative. Ah, uh, yeah, no, I, you might have to fill in more of the details here because I'm I'm not as familiar with the, the life of Dwight Dwight Moody. But uh, he's he's a very influential evangelist, especially in the Midwest. He's he's famous for, I mean, just having you know gigantic rallies, also having his Bible colleges. He's famous for his uh, Bible correspondence course, or I, I don't remember exactly what it was called, uh, that be, that became you know very influential in the the fun, in fundamentalist circles. And uh, he's he's a very energetic man. I mean, he does a gigantic amount of labor in the United States, all over the United States, for that matter. And I think, if I remember correctly, CFW Walther even once spoke positively of him. So yeah, yeah. All right. So in 1879, Moody is making plans for a big evangelistic campaign in St. Louis. C.I. Schofield comes up in these stories about it, and he later reports Schofield to have worked on this campaign that Moody set up um, in St. Louis. So the usual story is that Schofield was was a drunk, but then he was converted away from drunkenness and was a changed man. Could be. And a man by the name of McFeeters is credited with uh, preaching the gospel to Schofield. And so Schofield was purported to have accepted Christ in McFeeters' law office during this period. Now, all this time, Schofield is doing bad things in St. Louis. His family's in Atchison. So he's alone in St. Louis and claims to be, be converted around this time or have, and then at the same time, having worked on this campaign. At this time, he undergoes his early theological training with a man by the name of Brooks at Walnut Street Presbyterian in St. Louis. I wonder if that's still there. Uh, Brooks was a friend and student of John Nelson Darby. Remember the the founder of dispensationalism. And according to this narrative, up until 1879, Schofield, according to his biographer, his personal biographer, Trumbull, 
stated that Schofield was ignorant of all things Christian up until 1879, the year of his conversion. In July 1880, Schofield joins Pilgrim Congregational Church. At the same time, the St. Louis Association of Congregational Churches, Churches issues him a license to preach. And he immediately organizes another church and serves there until 1882. So we have this sort of congregational service going on, a license to preach, which can be a little bit confusing um, because licenses to preach and ordination are not necessarily the same things in these churches. Right. So, so basically he is converted and there's some, do we know, is he converted? You know, okay. So he's knows nothing of Christ until 1879, but he's working, allegedly working on this evangelistic campaign that happened in 1879. You know, what's really going on here. There's some discrepancies here, but he's almost immediately licensed to preach after his conversion and immediately comes under the sway of a friend of the founder of dispensationalism. Right. While he's undergoing a divorce uh, uh, pretty soon here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all, it's all interesting. I don't, I'm yeah. not even sure what to make of it. So. Right. So a year prior to his divorce, that's when he receives his call to the first congregational church in Dallas. And it's kind of interesting because there's some worry about him going down there because this great Confederate soldier that he was is viewed as being a northerner <laughs> by the <laughs> congregation in Texas. Yeah. So during this time, though, his, that church does grow very quickly. And at the same time, there's like subordination council stuff going on. It gets all. But anyway, his divorce is finalized. So this is all 1883. In 1884, March, so October 1883 to March 11, 1884, he marries Hetty Van Wark. So in 1884, he marries her just three months after his divorce was official. Right. And so, again, this, this would cause a, a scandal anywhere you go. And so there's just a lot of murky stuff. We don't know all the details here about the divorce being final. We cannot really tell exactly, you know, what is this deal with his conversion, what he was really doing in 1879. We just know that between 1880 and 1884, he is given a license to preach. He ends up in Texas, divorce is finalized, and he's quickly remarried. So quickly ordained, quickly remarried. Hmm. Yeah. And then in 1888, he publishes his first booklet titled Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth, which is the first time he presents his developing dispensational theology. So this is 1888, publishes a booklet. Now Schofield is a dispensationalist publisher. And that brings us to the end of this segment. We're going to talk more about what he published right after this. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in Him. The book that sits on your shelf, the one gathering dust, word fitly spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi talking the Reverend, the Reverend C.I. Schofield and uh, his book <laughs> and and his system, the system that he promoted. So we got up to his first publication, the pamphlet, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. So a dispensationalist manifesto. And so from here, he really becomes uh, kind of a big name in Christian fundamentalism. And as he's going to continue right on up in the early 20th century. So rightly dividing the word of truth is a, a bit of a kind of a pun in a way, because it's talking about God dividing the epochs into these dispensations, as we talked about. But before we get into his greatest publishing work, uh, we need to understand that Schofield is beginning to move away from the south. He, he moves towards the north, begins to move in northern circles. Eventually, he's going to become a rather wealthy man because of his reference Bible. He's going to buy real estate in Dallas, New Hampshire, and Long Island. Hmm. So that's that's a bit interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's going to get up onto the eastern seaboard here, up around Massachusetts, and then he's going to be invited uh, to something called the Lotus Club which was uh, found in 1870, a gentleman's club in New York City. And we mean gentleman's club in the classy sense. Like, think right. like uh, think <laughs> like like the lounge and trading places, not like, you know, where your shady uncle goes on payday. Yeah, we, we <laughs> might be we might be being kind of hard on Schofield, but we're not going to completely. We're not, not going to slander him. him. It's uh, yeah. And, and it's really here that he becomes one of the literati, because as we, as we mentioned earlier, he's very much into literature and things like that. But this is in um, 1901 that he's admitted to the Lotus Club in New York City. And it says in their like charter, Article 1, the primary objective of this club shall be to promote social intercourse among journalists, artists, and members of the musical and dramatic professions, and representatives, amateurs, and friends of literature, science, and the fine arts. And at least one-third of the members shall be connected with this, uh, with said classes, which is kind of an odd group for a Christian fundamentalist founder to find himself in. Right. In the Lotus Club, or one of the members, is a man named Samuel Untermeyer. And the club roster has many influential men in New York City and many prominent Jewish and Zionist leaders. Now, Zellin, what's a Zionist? Uh, Zionism as a movement would be the the Israelis who are trying to kind of, what, reestablish Israel, right? I mean, just the that nationalist kind of uh, Jewish movement, which eventually will it, it result in the creation of the the national uh, state of Israel. Yeah, it's it's a movement to establish a Jewish ethno state, a, a political entity right. in the Middle East, a restoration of the political entity of Israel, and you know, notably, kind of a minority position among even among the Jews at that time. Sure, as I understand it, anyway. I mean, it could have been. I mean, there's a desire for a homeland, but actually a concerted political effort to build it. You know, it, it, it's starting to gain steam, though, in New York in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Now, here's the question that we're asked. Okay, is it just a coincidence that that the promoters of Zionism are in the same club as Schofield? Best construction on it, we say that Schofield's just there for the literature stuff. Sure. And art prints and theater, which, again, very odd thing for a fundamentalist at the time. Well, but but then but then the question becomes, what is this fundamentalist preacher doing in a what is 
a fairly a fairly high class society group. Exactly. You know, this is not his. These are not his social circles. Right. And so now it's like, okay, why is he here? Well, did he seek these club acquaintances so that he could get his large publishing project off projects off the ground? Is there any connection between these highly influential members here and his later connection with Oxford University Press? And here's one of these gaps that we don't fill in or that we can't fill in. Okay, are we forced to say it's just a coincidence and that he luckily just stumbled into two giant uh, social circles with overlapping members and acquaintances? Because that's what his proponents want us to believe. Right. It seems to me that the most simple answer here is that he was influenced by these people and was at least in part backed by these people. And then we get into like really in the weeds here of, well, did he want to move back to Texas? He started selling real estate. He started doing this, but he also bought real estate. What did he want to do? Well, it seems pretty clear that Schofield really wanted to be a publisher. He really wanted to be an author and he loved literature and he, he really kind of has his own genre. But this is all going to culminate in 1909 with the publication of the Schofield Reference Bible. So first edition is 1909. Revised edition is 1917. And there are some later editions. This is, this is very significant. So it's a reference Bible. We're going to talk about what that is in a minute. But it is kind of the blueprint for modern dispensationalism. You have this idea that there will be a definite physical homeland, a restoration of the Jews to Israel, to Palestine. And, and so that homeland is going to be, all be part of the premillennial understanding of prophecy. So fulfill, a fulfillment of prophecy for this to happen, this must happen in order to bring about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Tied into that is the building of a third temple, wherein animal sacrifices would return, for example, and things like that. But... That's why we say, well, you have these prominent Zionist men who would have influenced his publication, would have made connections. Is there any connection between these influential men that he rubbed elbows with and the contents of his theology? And I think it's something we need to ponder. To be fair, it is a bit of a historical mystery, but at the same time, it's too big of a coincidence, I think, to ignore. I think we must at least take that into consideration. Well, and especially when you have the reference Bible itself being published by Oxford. That just seems very, very strange, even for this time period, because Oxford is not one that's, I think, especially in these more recent times, has ever really been known as, you know, for promoting what we might call a religious sectarianism, right? I mean, this isn't the kind of book you would think that they would be really all that interested in. But for whatever reason, they pick it up, and are the ones who publish it. In fact, I think they're the ones who continue to publish it. Correct. You know, yeah. You know, it's it just, it seems very, very odd yeah. is all I'm saying. Yeah. And it could be, it, it, it need not be a big conspiracy. They maybe saw money in it, <laughs> you know. Entirely uh, possible. Yeah. And and so so let's talk a little bit about what the Schofield Reference Bible is. It's a study Bible, which is a term that we're all very familiar with. Right. Uh, this audience is. However, it's very unique at the time. I mean, it's really the first notable example since the Geneva Bible to have the commentary printed in the same volume as the Bible. There were plenty of commentaries prior to that, except they're separate volumes. So you have to open up your Bible and open up a, sec- a second book. Well, these are listed as notes, you know, in the in the bottom of the page with references in the margins. And you've got to be careful. You can do a lot of selective interpretations with just scripture references, cross references. 
Sure. But it is a cross-referencing system. It has these notes here. And this book is a huge seller. And it's in tons of homes. You know, prior to that, every home had a King James Bible and a Matthew Henry commentary. And at a certain point, a lot of American fundamentalist Christian homes had the Schofield Reference Bible. Sure. And and it was the, like if you said study Bible, it was synonymous. And so, I mean, it popularizes chain references, all kinds of things. I mean, it really sets the, the, the blueprint for modern study Bibles and sets the blueprint theologically for dispensationalism, for the popularization right. of dispensationalism. So, uh, you know, it's interesting and like, the later edition, he he tries to date the Bible or to date the events of the Bible. So he actually advocates the gap theory. So they're like, oh, it's a, I mean, it's kind of like a form of old earth creationism. Right. Or it is. And so it's kind of weird to think this fundamentalist thing is, is seems to have, you know, advocated the gap theory a little bit. And so then there's an internal debate in fundamentalism. Well, I mean, it's there's there's a lot to deal with the Bible, the the study Bible itself. But I would I would point out that the reference Bible, although I don't actually personally own a copy, I think you do, Willie, so you can help me out on this. But from what I've seen, you know, like on digital versions of it or whatever, it seems to you know it'll have like its introductions, it'll have you know various notes on different parts of the Bible. But this is not like you would think with our study Bibles, uh, where there's a note like on virtually everything. Or, you know, most everything in the Bible, just kind of explaining, you know, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? It really focuses in on particular points of the Bible and has a special interest in apocalyptic literature, right? Uh, Correct. And then that's an exciting thing for a lot of people Mm -hmm. that they see this and it's a very exciting sort of thing. And and so it's, it's, it, it brings kind of people from being mere, you know, readers of history as they see it into participants in, in modern biblical events, which if they had a, a better grasp, I think of sacramental theology, it might help, it might help some of this. <laughs> right. But yeah. So anyway, yeah, he's, he definitely has, I don't want to say an ax to grind, but he definitely has an aim in what he's trying to do. And one of the things that popularizes it. So you have, it's published in 1909, which is a few years before the outbreak of world war one. Now, prior to this, premillennial dispensationalism was not as popular as it is today. It was growing. But postmillennialism, the idea that the world would get better and better and better until the thousand-year reign of Christ, essentially that the earth would be more and more Christianized, was much more popular. Well, World War I comes along and really bursts that bubble as far as Christian optimism is concerned. And so people were thinking there was going to be a new era of peace. There was going to be a new era of Christianization and it didn't happen. So people begin to look toward a more pessimistic view of the end times. And here's Schofield's Bible. And so they're really buying into it. Then you have the world war two era post-world war two, which is where we see the, the creation of Israel. And all of a sudden Schofield is seen as something of a prophet by world war two or by the end of the Second World War, rather, he's into the millions of copies sold of this Bible. Because of some events in history, his reputation is solidified. Well, of course he's correct. Look at all of these events that are happening. Again, this is why we're why we're doing a separate episode just on the on the theology here. But from there, through his study notes, many fundamentalist Christians adopt his theology. And his notes in the book of Revelation are still highly influential. 
And I mean, he's, he's really the guy in the 20th century that stressed eschatological predictions or, or speculations, we'll say. Now, if you want to look up and see what he says, at least the 1917 notes are public domain. So there's a 67 revision that you can find, but you can go and look these up and they're still in print, still very popular. And Oxford continues to publish them. Right, right. And they, and they actually, you can get it in things other than the King James now. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it is interesting that Oxford would continue to publish this, but it is, I think maybe that contributes to some of its uh, appeal, you know, that a, a very well-respected publishing house in the world is publishing these notes. I mean, it's it's kind of like you know Schofield calling himself doctor. I think there is a kind of appeal that is given to it just by these associations. So regardless of what the, the actual merits of the theology might be, I, I think it's held up in a very positive light for those reasons, as well as, as the ones you mentioned before. Well, the- you know, and, and I think that there's probably a little bit of a, a word of warning for the Christian there that academic prestige an association with great publishing houses does not an Orthodox Christian make. Right. And, and an obsession with, with literary circles and with academia may well be spiritually harmful. And I, right. and I know a lot of people out there are, are much more pious than me, and they are totally immune from these sorts of temptations. But please, <laughs> please, we, we see it. We see the temptation toward, toward respect from the world. You know, we, we want... SBL to care about us for some reason, right? Or you know, we we are enamored with the world, with academia, with this. With, we just want to show off our big brains so much, and we just want to be accepted. Uh, the sooner you get over that, and the sooner you just trust in in the scriptures, trust in the living God, uh, hold hold firm to your confession of faith, to the confession of faith, you're, you're better off B- because you don't want the attention of these people. Because men get corrupted by these things. And the question with Schofield is, was he corrupted before or did he become corrupted? Or was he at least a sincere believer in this? Could have been both. There could be, there's, there's some shades of gray here. I'll freely admit. But you're absolutely right. Being associated with Oxford University, uh, lends him an air of, of prestige and integrity that, that he wouldn't otherwise have. And, and we have the, and we have this today, right? To this day, I mean, even though self-publishing is very is very popular, n- people tend to respect even something from Zondervan over something Lulu. self-published. Lulu, yeah, yeah. <laughs> bingo, bingo, uh, and and whether right or wrong, you know, wh- whether right or wrong, it just is what it is, and and so th- there you have it. And and as you know, I mean, even there there are very good self-published books. There are really some excellent stuff coming out of small publishing houses as well. And, and some just absolute disasters coming out of major Christian publishing houses and denominational publishing houses. Yeah, exactly. Well, and maybe as we're, as we're coming to a close then Willie, you know, cause we're kind of coming to the end of the, the whole segment here. Sure. Do you want to talk a little bit about a little bit more about the influence that we are going to see, especially on yes. later dispensationalism. Yes. Um, so he's going to influence men, uh, names that you might recognize, like Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins, like Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, the, the authors of the famous Left Behind series. He's going to influence men like John Hagee, who, and John Hagee essentially says that the Jews don't need Christ to go to heaven. There are dispensationalists out there today 
thankfully, I, I think, are shrinking in number who believe in two ways to heaven. They believe that, that the Jews rejected Christ, which is true, but in that God was like, oh, well, whoops, and he had to go to plan B, which was the church. Right. I, I said I wasn't going to tell too many personal stories when we were planning this, but you'll hear this a couple of times. You'll probably hear this story again. I was once I once found myself sitting in a Bible study in a holiness church. We all find ourselves in places and good people there. Very, very devout Christians. There, people that I that I know and respected. But anyway, so I'm sitting there and the, the pastor, another guy's leading the study. Big dispensational guy watches a lot of how Lindsay type TV programs always had a novel interpretation of everything. And the pastor says, well, I won't give the guy's name, but he says, sir, uh, what do you do? What do you say about these people who say that, that the Jews, that the Jewish people, you know, must uh, believe in Christ and, and that they're not saved by, by, you know, being obedient to the, to the law. And that teacher looked at him and said, I would say that that is a damnable lie from the pits of hell. Hmm. The damnable lie hmm. was to say that the Jews are saved by Christ alone and not by adherence to the Mosaic law. And that to say that hmm. they had to have explicit faith in Christ, that that was the damnable lie. I'm just thankful yeah. that day that the pews were bolted to the ground. <laughs> but I've heard this time and time again. And, and from, from these same teachers uh, kind of running in similar circles that according to Romans 11, where, or, you know, Romans, like, let's, let's say eight through 11, right? Where they're, where they're, because of their, it says, because of the hardness of their hearts, they were cut off. And so God hardens their hearts because of their unbelief. And they say that means they're saved because God can't harden their hearts. That would be unjust. So that they're all saved. So all these who, who whose hearts are hardened, the uh, Jewish people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because, and this is important, because in that system, these are the chosen people. They are completely separate from the church. They are the true sons of Abraham, unlike unlike Jesus being the one seed, as the Bible says, they are the true ones, and the Christians are not, and they get a special they get a special pass simply by virtue of being born that way and perhaps keeping the law. Hmm. So that so that for their unbelief they cannot be cut off. Now that's a bit of an extreme form of it, but I've seen it from men like Hagee. I've seen it from from others, and I've, I've sat there and heard it with my own ears from people who are imbibing this stuff from modern dispensationalist circles. Now, the progressive dispensationalists are not quite this bad, but nevertheless, this is out there. That's very, very dangerous to say that we don't need to preach the gospel to these people. I mean, if you if you believe you don't need to preach the gospel to them, what do you make of the entire first half of the book of Acts? Right. right. That's all preaching to the Jewish people. We preach the gospel to the Jewish people because they need to believe in Christ. We preach the gospel to everyone because they need to believe in Christ. And this is where I say with modern Roman Catholicism and, and dispensationalism, they're two sides of the same coin because now they're both saying, well, some people can be saved without explicit faith in Christ. And by committing that error and by saying that, we have now assigned those people to hell because we have refused to preach the gospel to them. They are not going to come and to faith in something that they have not heard. How can they call on whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? So what the scripture says. And so when I do get a little fired up about this system, it's for that reason. I can live with quirky stuff and some weird doctrines every now and then and some idiosyncrasies and things like that. Heaven knows we have that among our various Lutheran synods in some ways. But this is beyond the pale here. 
And this is a system that says not only not only can someone be saved apart from Christ, but that we want to build a temple again so that animal sacrifices can return. What could be more blasphemous for the Christian than to, than to return to sacrifices when Jesus Christ has already shed his blood for the sins of the whole world? These are things that are very troubling to me and why we need to talk about the system and why we need to reject the system. Because to reject that system, we are embracing the gospel of Christ. Because anytime you, you find salvation apart from him, and many dispensationalists would agree there is salvation in no one but Jesus Christ. But once you've started to put these wedges between the church, the, you know, the Israel of God, as the Bible puts it, once you start to divide the church, you begin to deny the gospel very quickly. Well, Zoan, do you have any final words before we wrap up? Well, I think you, you kind of said all of it and really made the point. I, maybe the one thing that I would say is that if our, if our discussion here of Schofield has been a little bit slanted, a little bit pointed, it has been exactly for the reason you're talking about in that, you know, when, when we have a man who is promoting a system that ends up, you know, basically saying you don't need to preach the gospel to certain groups of people, that is a, a dangerous thing. And we're not going to stand by idly and just let that happen. And I think maybe, I think maybe that's the, the best thing that we can emphasize as we close today. Absolutely. Well, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. God love you, and God bless. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch them as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches.